Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Oh, it's St. Patrick's Day. It's March Madness. I can see you watching a basketball game while we're doing this. No, that's not true. <laughs> and I never did that in law school or in undergrad. Of course not. No. I, and in my law school, there were everybody had laptops and all in front of me. I always remember uh, people playing poker <laughs> all day long. <laughs> and when those student loan checks came in, man. They then made the some, poker really went they up. They made some online <laughs> online funds. I hope. I hope they're doing well. I hope they're up. Um, important question for you today yes. on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, is the plural of Guinness, is it Guinnesses or is it like moose where it's like Guinness? You're going to have a Guinness or Guinness. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. I th- it's not Guinness I. That's no, ridiculous. I think it's just Guinness. Just Let's Guinness. go drink some Guinness. Guinnesses? Yeah, it, it so, wouldn't be Guinnesses. No, I don't think it's Guinnesses. All right. Well, if you have an official uh, take on that, please let me know. Um, what we want to do also is uh, we've heard some feedback. So we, what we want to do is we want to try and, uh, at least for the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions, get you in and out real quick as far as an overview. So we're going to do an executive summary. Are I like you comfortable it. with yeah, that? Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. All right. So what we're going to do for the executive summary, we're going to try and do it in, in, in you know four sentences. Right? Yeah. Because we got a doozy from the Nebraska Supreme Court today. We got three cases, right? We do. And the first case uh, is a Pard v. Pard, and that's a divorce case. Divorce case. It involves marital property. Correct. And uh, it's very significant. And if you do anything with divorces, you need to check it out. Absolutely. Okay. So that's that executive summary. And then we have uh, Benjamin S. versus Crystal S. Uh, that was. The Pard case was a reversal. This is also a reversal. Uh, this has to do with uh, divorce and termination of parental rights in a divorce. And so that was also uh, reversed. So that's one you need to take a look at. And then the third one was Estate of Clay Block versus the Estate of Catherine uh, Becker and some other folks. And that one is a, a tort kind of case. Yeah, it's not an estate case. That is a tort case. So tort people take note. And you'd look at it and you'd be like, yeah, you need to take. I, I, that's an estate case. I don't need to look at that. Well, no, it's actually a uh, tort case, and if you do torts, you need to take a look at it. Absolutely. Okay, so that is the executive summary. How do we do? I think we did good. I mean, for the executive. I summary. mean, that was point two. <laughs> that was, that was a, a very liberal point two, yes. as opposed to conservative point two. But let's get into the uh, into the the thickness of this and start going for, over. Uh, those cases, and we start with the Pard case, Carson. Yes, so Pard v. Pard, as we already did in the executive summary, this is a divorce case um, coming out of, uh, well, it's actually an appeal um, from the uh, Court of Appeals, but originally coming out of Gage County. And the big issue here is um, whether or not the uh, whether or not Nebraska law applies the active appreciation rule to agricultural land um, in a marital property uh, division. And so this case is a lot of cases that I'm sure uh, individuals listening to this pod have uh, had a lot to do with dividing up marital property. And a lot of this property was agricultural property that had uh, substantially appreciated over the years. And so uh, they went through the individual pieces of property, uh, did a lot, of course, as these divorce cases always are, it was very uh, heavily fact intensive. But the main thing uh, that we glean from this case is that indeed agricultural property um, is considered uh, to have accrued investment and have accrued earnings that are uh, marital assets uh, during the marriage, unless um, there is evidence shown otherwise. So the ruling 
in Nebraska now is that there is a uh, rebuttable, rebuttable presumption um, that appreciated land and agricultural land um, should be included as a meritable asset. And um, the only way to, to go against that rebuttable presumption is to have a uh, factual determination from the party uh, seeking to show that that growth was a non-marital asset. And there they have to show that the growth is uh, readily identifiable and traceable to the non-marital portion of the, account, of the account. And then that the growth is not due to active efforts of either spouse. So you have to show that it is just based on the market alone and not that it was uh, the work of the spouse. And so the big rule here here is whether it was one spouse improving the property or one spouse primarily working on it, as long as that land sitting there um, appreciated in value, it is considered to have been the work of both uh, spouses. So big case. and Yeah. And, and that's going to be significant for a lot of folks. And if you have a trial on Monday uh, involving any sort of agricultural land and property, you, you need to spend some time and take a look at that and, and structure your presentation of the evidence accordingly. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah important and will change um, work for divorce practitioners tomorrow. Yeah, or right now. Or right now, or right as now. we speak. Yeah, I, Listen I, to this pod quickly. That's a plug <laughs> for listening on Fridays. Listening on Fridays, yeah, get it over. See what you need to do this weekend. Uh, Benjamin S. Crystal S., this is a case out of the District Court of Cheyenne County, and it involved a uh, divorce proceeding back in 2000, I think it was 15, uh, and then... <clears throat> the uh, husband was the father was granted custody of these three children, full legal and physical custody. And then from 2016 to 2020, basically the mother of the children had no contact with the children. And then she files a handwritten complaint for modification, basically saying, um, I, I, he's withholding the children from me. I need to be able to see him. And then the father files a responsive pleading to that handwritten complaint saying, um, no, and we're going to terminate your parental rights. So they have a hearing on the termination of the parental rights. Uh, they, the state does not get involved. And so they go and they prove up the termination of parental rights grounds. They focus on her criminal behavior when she was in Colorado during the 2016 to 2020 time. And then she was 61,000 in arrears on child support. And then the court uh, she claimed, the mom claims, that there's no intent to abandon because she recently moved back to Sydney and was trying to get her life back in order. And then there were some other allegations regarding that. The district court found that the statutory grounds existed uh, by clear and convincing evidence and that it was in the best interest to terminate the mother's parental rights uh, in this custody kind of situation. Now, um, the only evidence offered as far as testimony was the mother, the father, and I believe the mother's mother. So the grandmother of the children. And it focused on her interactions with the children recently and in the past. The father obviously focused on that time period from 2016 to 2020. But the district, uh, the district court found that there was enough to terminate the parental rights. Now, the Supreme Court reverses. They say um, you have to look at where she is now and she's not presently unfit at the time of trial. So the evidence is, is going to be more important regarding where she is right now as opposed to something she did in the past. And I, I think that makes sense as far as you don't want to punish somebody for their past behavior. If they are in a present situation, they should be able to have that constitutional right to parent their children. And further, the Supreme Court indicated that there was no evidence of best interests uh, being, uh, being found by terminating the mother's parental rights to these children. So 
it didn't focus on any of the, oh, should we supervise your parenting time or dis, uh, dismiss those? Those might be considerations for the district court. But as far as termination of parental rights, the bar is very, very high in a district court kind of situation. And you're going to need a lot of evidence to get it done. So that's the takeaway from that case. Okay. Um, so then the next case uh, we come to, which as we already said, it, it looks like an estate appeal, but it is um, an appeal from a granting of summary judgment in a um, essentially wrongful death action. In this case, Block um, had fallen from a friend's apartment balcony, um, and unfortunately he passed away from uh, that fall. And here, uh, there's quite a bit of facts as to uh, maybe what potentially led to this happening. Uh, there were facts introduced that uh, Block at the point that this happened was fairly intoxicated, um, that uh, he was you know, maybe leaning against the rail or had fallen on his own volition. Of course, the uh, moving party here is saying that um, no, uh, the uh, balcony that he fell over was um insecure and and was not able to uh, withstand uh, his weight and that's why he fell and essentially our supreme court evaluates that uh, the uh, district court had granted saying that you know there was a toxicology report saying that he was um, drunk there were uh, multiple lines of um of possibility as to why this happened. And because of that fact, um, you know, the moving party had failed to show that this was a uh, result of negligence. And uh, the Supreme Court takes issue with that and says um, that, no, there is direct and circumstantial evidence, and um, you can show direct evidence, but you can also show um, circumstantial evidence where, um, you know, you can have things that are logically inferred. And um, when there's uh, logical inferences that can be made as to what actually happened, the individual who gets to decide that is a jury because they are the finders of fact. And so in those cases, um, it is not not appropriate for um, summary judgment to be granted because uh, the plaintiff doesn't have to um, show that, um, you know, they don't have to show their theory of negligence is so clear that it excludes every other theory of negligence. That is for a jury to weigh up. And so the jury is the individual who gets to decide that. And so when you have a case like that, um, it is not appropriate to have a granting of summary judgment. Rather, it is appropriate to have that case uh, submitted to the appropriate fact finder, which is the uh, jury. And so that's why we have juries here. And so uh, another case where we deal with proximate cause, we had a couple a couple weeks ago, we had a Supreme Court case where uh, we dealt with proximate cause in a criminal matter. Um, here we, uh, again, the Supreme Court takes up that issue of proximate cause. And so I would encourage anyone here uh, who has something that is on the lines um, for summary judgment that deals with proximate cause to come look at these because proximate cause is fairly fact intensive. Of course, it's a legal standard, but anytime you can get some good facts from our appellate courts that uh, would lead uh, you to believe that your case is uh, more plausible or less plausible, you absolutely uh, should take a look at this case because there's a great discussion on that proximate cause issue. Then, of course, the um, discussion on summary judgment, you know, but essentially here we we uh, come to the conclusion that summary judgment should not have been granted. So we have another reversal and uh, remand. But again, if you want to deal with that negligence issue, the proximate cause issue, uh, tort people beware on this one. Uh, take a look at this opinion. Hey, that's the uh, Supreme Court opinions for this week, March 17th. 
Uh, we're going to get into the court appeals decisions. I think the first one here, we're not going to do an executive summary on these because they issued 10 of them and, and I'm not going to do that. So, <laughs> Yeah, we can executive summary, but some of these will go fairly quick. Yeah. Um, so the first case we have is Hudson v. Hudson. This is another divorce case. And again, it's a, it's a long opinion, very fact intensive. I think it's 27 pages. Um, so I'm going to make it rather brief, but uh, the main here, main issue here was whether or not um, the district court had abused its discretion in failing to modify um, a um, award for, um, I believe it was for uh, child, child, uh, yeah, yeah, child, um, child support or, or support of the child, child care or child care, yes, yeah, child, child care, care costs. Expenses, yeah. And so here, um, Essentially, they said that there was evidence de demonstrating that there was a material change in circumstances. Um, and so, you know, essentially here some work time had increased and thus that impact uh, or impacted the child care expenses. And so uh, the district court had abused its discretion in failing um, to find that there was a material change and that that needed to be modified as to um, child care expenses. But again, you know, one of these divorce opinions where maybe if you have something along the material um, change of circumstances, take a look at it. Otherwise, very uh, fact-intensive case uh, out of the court out of the court of appeals, but that was um, a reversal. Yeah, that was an interesting read. A lot of facts, a lot of citations to the bill of exceptions, and and you get really get a good eye on how those proceedings went in the lower court below, and uh, maybe some indications of. Uh, what the proceedings were like and, and why they... Uh, and how to do things procedurally. I mean, oh, sometimes sure. that can be the benefit of having so many facts is it's like, okay, well, these are the things that I need to do um, at the district court level, which is where most of us uh, are initially practicing. Well, you got to start there. <laughs> you got to start there. All right. I have uh, Ilton versus City of Grand Island. This is a political subdivision tort claims act case. Uh, in December 19, or excuse me, December 19th of 2018, the plaintiff was struck by an ambulance and uh, about a year, almost a year later, they sent the letter to the city uh, giving them notice to discuss under the Political Subdivision Tort Claims Act. There were some discussions back and forth, and uh, the uh, they were doing offers back and forth, and a little thing called uh, COVID-19 happened, like right in the middle of those discussions, and then nobody did anything uh, until basically April of 2021. So in April of 2021, April 23rd, 2021, the plaintiff uh, said, we're withdrawing uh, our letter, our demand, and we're, they filed suit. And it was dismissed after a motion to dismiss filed by the city because it was time barred. Uh, and then the plaintiff here appealed. Now, there's a good discussion here of the timing of the Political Subdivision Tort Claims Act. There's a two-year statute of limitations with some narrow exceptions, and those exceptions were not present here. So the statute of limitations uh, was not told for any reason, and the dismissal happened, and the uh, dismissal from the district court of uh, the uh, plaintiff's claims was affirmed. Uh, the next Court of Appeals opinion we come to is the city of Hild Hildreth versus uh, Smallcombs. Here, this is essentially the Smallcombs are saying that uh, they did not have nuisance properties and that um, they're appealing from an award of an injunction from the Franklin County District Court. Uh, the couple of pieces that I thought were kind of interesting here, um, one, they uh, the Court of Appeals notes on uh, when collateral estoppel appeal, uh, um, applies, and it's an appeal from a city ordinance. So uh, here the collateral estoppel applied at the um, time of the district court's order, and so um, they go into the conditions that must exist for when collateral estoppel applies. 
utilized. And so I always think it's kind of interesting to um, hit that again. And then, um, you know, as far as sufficiency of evidence and then um, the granting of the injunction, uh, they essentially found no error there, go through um, when those things are appropriate and when, um, in a case like this with nuisance, nuisance conditions, uh, when those should be applied and when they should not be applied. Um, and here they found uh, no error in the district court's order and affirmed. State v. Wachner is a criminal uh, appeal from the Nebraska Court of Appeals, and it's basically regarding speedy trial issues, and the uh, defendant here filed an absolute discharge uh, at a certain point. There were a number of pretrial motions and requests by the state for a continuance following those motions, or in the middle, basically, of those motions. But the uh, defendant filed a motion to suppress and was actually ultimately successful on the motion to suppress some statements that the defendant made to law enforcement. And the court of appeals here says, well, basically one, once you file that motion to suppress until there's a ruling on that motion to suppress, all that time uh, goes against the defendant. So um, there's there's a number of, of mathematical things that go on here. I, I don't like math. I, I look at some of these cases and I need a uh, Excel spreadsheet to figure it out. But the court uh, sorted it out here and they said that the uh, speedy trial was not violated and affirmed uh, the um, after doing their own calculation from the trial court. Okay. Uh, next case we have a state v. Hamray. Um, this is an appeal uh, from a plea-based conviction in um, Hall County. And essentially the uh, basis here is uh, ineffective assistance of counsel and the issues are raised primarily against trial counsel failing to advise um, of certain things and then uh, that there was insufficient evidence for uh, the the conviction. Um, the interesting thing, the, the couple of things I'll note from here um, is that the uh, second ineffective assistance of claim um, of uh, trial claim was couched as failure to clearly and timely communicate with uh, the defendant. And here um, they're saying that there needs to be uh, more to that argument. And so if you want to plead that, you have to have, uh, you know, more facts and, and indicate why and what failure. And then the other one is uh, failure to advise on um, the fact that his conviction and becoming a felon uh, could impact his uh, right and ability to own uh, firearms. And here at the uh, plea hearing, that was stated on the record, and he was advised that a felon conviction could uh, result in the loss of certain rights, including the right to uh, possess a firearm. I guess the interesting piece would be there. Um, had that not happened on the record, would that have been an error? I don't know. Uh, but the interesting piece here is that... No. No. <laughs> but the interesting piece here is that it did happen on the record. So then you don't get to claim on appeal right. that, oh, I didn't know. So. No, that's good. Uh, good practice from the uh, trial court getting that out. Yep. Um Interest of Trinity F, uh, it's a juvenile case, termination of parental rights. They had uh, 15 out of 22, 15 months out of the most recent 22 months on other grounds. Um, the dad here, he was incarcerated for a certain portion of the proceedings, and then uh, he suffered an accident uh, regarding those proceedings. Ultimately, the lower court terminated his parental rights, finding that a statutory ground existed and that it was in the child's best interest to uh, have his rights terminated. And while and the Nebraska Court of Appeals says, while they're sympathetic to the personal difficulties the dad faced, he's not in a position to have the child returned. And they found clear and convincing evidence and uh, that a statutory ground existed in the best interest of the child uh, favored termination of his parental rights. And they affirmed. 
The next case we have is a also a, a termination of uh, parental rights, uh, State of Nebraska versus uh, Jasmine H. Uh, in in uh, Ray, the interest of Blaze N. Um, and this is um, another case where um, we go through all the steps in the uh, termination of parental rights here. The interesting piece that I'll note here and, and the Court of Appeals kind of uh, throwing a zinger here is when um, they noted in the best interest of the child section here uh, that the mother in this case um, had had the child removed for two months and had not contacted HHS. And so um, and then even after that, didn't request any visits or anything. And so the Court of Appeals seemed to um, not look too fondly on that. So if if your kids get removed, um, you should find out where they are. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have interest of Tamir W. It's a juvenile adjudication appeal. Uh, 3A petition was brought on behalf of the, um, Tamir, uh, alleging certain grounds that he was in a situation contrary to health, safety, welfare, or morals. And the uh, mother, I think, admitted or didn't participate or was, was easily found, certainly didn't appeal. Uh, the father, in this case, appealed um, from the amended petition, the 3A petition. There was a number of circumstances in the past regarding uh, his behavior towards the juvenile, and ultimately the trial court found that uh, the child should be adjudicated. It's a very low standard there. And the Nebraska Court of Appeals noted that the 3A petition is b- brought on behalf of the child not to punish the parents. So it's what the, the situation that the child's found in, not necessarily anything that the parents have done, even though in this case the uh, state proved that there was a risk of future harm and there was also actual harm uh, done to this child. So the uh, adjudication of the child was affirmed on appeal. Next case we come to is Young v. Uh, Miller. This is an appeal from um, the renewal of a domestic abuse protection order. Um, here, again, we've kind of had these domestic abuse protection orders. The The interesting piece that I'll note is that um, on renewal of a uh, domestic abuse protection order, it is not automatic when the respondent contests the renewal. So if you actually have the hearing and it's contested, it's not automatic. And here they say, well, rather an evidentiary uh, hearing is held. Um, and the purpose of that hearing is to receive evidence so that the court may reweigh the burdens the order will inflict against its uh, benefits in light of all the relevant circumstances. Um, and then um, they get to choose whether or not the domestic protection order is um, renewal, renewed. Um, and then, um, again, the, the weighing of factors against um, protecting victims and then um, the restriction on the person it's being granted against. And I guess the interesting piece there is that uh, the prior protection orders do apply when um, the district court is deciding whether or not they want to renew that, um, but essentially they get to uh, reweigh the evidence at that time of hearing. So if you had a uh, past protection past protection order, it is still evidence of why a future one should be granted, but there is an opportunity to be heard on an evidentiary hearing as long as that is contested. And then the court gets to, again, uh, uh, do a reweighing, uh, a new weighing of whether or not that should be granted. And, you know, just in this world where we've had a lot of protection order cases, I thought that was kind of an interesting piece. No, but absolutely. it was affirmed. Yeah, interesting. State v. Burns, it is a um, district court juvenile transfer case out of Douglas County. Uh, the individual here was 16 years and 11 months old at the time of the facts that were alleged. Um, the facts indicate that some bikes were stolen in Douglas County. And then the owner of the bikes uh, got in a vehicle to run them down and I think was successful in running them down. And they abandoned the bikes and got into a getaway car. And then they fired 
shots at the owner of the bikes who was driving the vehicle, shot, uh, shot twice at his vehicle, and uh, Burns here was seen as the individual who uh, discharged the firearm. So the uh, court goes through, well, it's filed once it gets to district court, they filed a request to transfer it to juvenile case, uh, juvenile court. Uh, the court goes through, as we've discussed here many times, there's a plethora of factors to be considered, and the uh, court goes through all those factors and then affirms the denial of the transfer to juvenile court. So uh, Mr. Burns is going to be in criminal court uh, regarding those charges. Quite a set of facts there. Wow. I mean, yeah. Jeez. We've had some intense juvenile cases. Over the last few weeks, which yeah. is why they make, I guess that's why they make law, but sometimes, yeah, tough ones. Are we done? Was that it? I think we're done. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, we St. got Patrick's out of here expeditiously. Day. Expeditiously. Look at us when you have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have uh, some listener mail. Well, first of all, I go back to episode one. Yep. Disclaimer. Uh, disclaimer. Go back to episode one. And then we have some listener mail. Oh, look uh, at this. Look at this. We have some, someone asked, Randomly, okay, uh, about the outcome of a vaccine mandate appeal between St. Thomas More and Creighton. Um, I think it was dismissed. I, I googled it real quick. I don't. I don't know. I didn't see anything about that. Have you seen anything about that? No. Okay. Well, then there's that. And then uh, we also had a gentleman who randomly messaged us a photograph of his feet. And I just want to say, there's no need for that. Jeff ends, you can keep those to yourself. <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree. There's no, uh, nothing more fitting uh, than the end of our uh, Feast of St. Patrick than about some Irish music about the law. So we got some Dropkick Murphys here. And I don't know if I'm sophisticated enough to tell the songs apart. I don't think I am either. They all sound like March 17th to me. Yeah. But anyway, episode one, uh, point two law review. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your Guinnesses. Enjoy your Guinness. Thanks, everybody.